Good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I don't know about you guys, but I'm glad to be here. 1 Kings chapter 8 this morning for Sunday school. And we have in the lives of people from the Bible where they met at an altar of God, an altar for sacrifice, and then for something in this particular event struck us as something that needed to be discussed. And this morning uh, is rather a, I wouldn't really call it a controversial topic, but a difficult topic. This morning's title is The Altar of Humility. We live in a world today that Pride is not just a slogan or a logo, it is a way of life. And I'm not talking about just the homosexual agenda. I'm talking about people uh, filled up with themselves, let's put it that way. And when we begin to look at this passage, this, there is an alternate passage we are going to be reading and studying from 1 Kings chapter 8. But I will also make mention and reference a couple of times to 2 Chronicles chapters 5 through 7. Now, interestingly, this particular event in 1 Kings is rather compact. And when you go and you read it in 2 Chronicles, the Bible spreads it out in some more detail in some places. And we'll talk about a couple of those. But mainly, the Lord just, for some reason, decides to break it up when we get to the book of Second Chronicles. So we're going to look at this from 1 Kings 8. We're going to read this morning verse number 22 and verse number 54 as our text verses. So verse number 22 and verse number 54 will be our text verses. Verse 22, the Bible says, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands toward heaven. Verse number 54, the Bible says, And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We ask you, Father, for your grace and your mercy, your blessing upon this lesson and upon your word. We ask you, Father, that you would lead us and guide us, teach us your will, each of us. Father, show us what you would have us to get from this lesson. Help us to understand the importance of humility. Teach us your will, O Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we will look at a passage from 2 Chronicles here in just a few minutes that deals with this. But I would like to give, as we've been doing in each of the lessons so far, uh, somewhat of a history of what is going on at this particular point. In verses 1 and 2 of 1 Kings chapter 8, we see a momentous gathering. We see in this passage that the Bible says that Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel. And as he does this, he's got a, a, major, a major event that he wants to accomplish in this particular passage. This is the dedication of the temple. And when I mentioned the alternate verses in 2 Chronicles 5 through 7, many of you are probably aware of maybe one of the most famous verses in that passage of Scripture, 2 Chronicles 7:14, if my people, which are called by my name, etc., etc. And we'll get to that here in a few minutes. That is, this is leading up to all of that. 
And so as we look at this this morning, we understand that Solomon wanted to accomplish something great this day. They have spent years building a, a temple for God. Up until this point in Scripture, God has dwelled in tents. That was His desire, His plan. God had never chosen a specific place to have a permanent home, if you will, until now. And we see in this passage of Scripture that as David or as Solomon begins to assemble all of the children of Israel, he's primarily interested in the leaders. Leadership, it has been said that everything, particularly in a church, rises and falls upon leadership. Good leadership makes for a great church, poor leadership, a poor church. And I'm not talking poor financially. As we look at this, I would bring to our attention this morning that in the primary passage of Scripture that we see here in the two verses that we read, we see that Solomon starts out standing before the altar. He stands before God. Somewhere before we get to verse number 54, his attitude changes. His position changes. He goes from standing before God to kneeling before God. What made that change? Why? And as I studied this, I, I'm, uh, and until I got to Second Chronicles, to be honest with you, there's, there's still much, much question as to exactly when David, or David Solomon decided to kneel. We don't really know. The Bible does not say. But I have a theory, and I would ask you to be patient with me as we get into this this morning. Verses 3 through 11, also in 2 Chronicles 5, verses 4 through 14, we see the moving of the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of God. This was a major event. We remember the last time that the Ark of the Covenant was moved. We know that David decided to move the Ark of the Covenant in an unbiblical way, I guess would be the easiest way to say it. He borrowed a lesson from the Philistines and suffered greatly because of it. The loss of a great man. And we see that Solomon does things the right way. The priests come, they pick up the ark, and they move it into the temple of God. In verse number 11, the Bible says that the glory of the Lord filled the house. I don't know about you guys, but I've never been in a church service where that happened. I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to be able to experience what that might be like. To have the presence of God in such a way that you're not able to even minister. To be able to do anything. All you can do is submit yourself before God. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. In verses 12 through 21, we see Solomon's review of history. This is also in 2 Chronicles 6, verses 1 through 11. In verse number 16, we see that David is chosen by God. Solomon reminds God of his choosing and reminds the people. We see in verse number 17, David's desire to build the house of God, but God said no. You know, sometimes the... Most difficult for things for us is when God says no. We aren't real fond of that, to be quite honest with you. We want to do what we want with God's blessing in our life. And sometimes that's just not the case. If our will is done, then sometimes God's blessing doesn't. But we see here that this is an amazing thing in the life of the children of Israel because God, yes, said no to, to David building the house of God, 
But he says to him, I'll use your son to do so. For you and I this morning, just as a quick aside here, you know, sometimes it's not all about us. It's about the next generation. It's about what the next generation can do. And it is our job as parents, grandparents in many cases around the room this morning, to equip that next generation to help them to be who God can use. As we look at this, we see the impact of David's influence in Solomon's life and allowing that desire to build the house of God to affect Solomon to the point where he wanted to build the house of God. This wasn't something thrust upon him. This became his desire as much as it was David's. Now, this was not always the case in the life of David. David failed miserably when it came to some of his other sons. You go back and you read some of the accounts of the things that happened to his other sons. And well, you got one son that decides to try to murder the rest of them. That's just not good. There's a failure there somewhere in the parenting. But yet something happened with Solomon and David that changed the course of everything. And Solomon turns out different than any of the boys. We get down to verses 22 through 54, and we see Solomon's prayer. We read verse 22, how that Solomon stood before the altar of God. If you read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse number 13, the Bible says this, For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and of five cubits broad and of three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court. Now, we'll pause right there in the verse for a moment. We don't read any of this in 1 Kings chapter 8. Interestingly, if you're studying the Bible, don't just study one passage at a time. I'm a firm believer in reading through your Bible in a year, but I have a bad habit. I get distracted. I've got this issue. I want to see the other parts. I want to read the other three of the four Gospels, if you will. I want to see the other parallel passages because many times they fill in bits and pieces that you just don't get by reading one passage. And by the time you get from 1 Kings to 2 Chronicles, you may have forgotten this. Read them side by side. I highly recommend that. Because we see here the remainder of this verse. It says, And upon it he stood and kneeled down upon his knees, before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. Why is this so important? Who is Solomon? Solomon is not just David's son. He is the king of Israel. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't know too many people in positions of great authority that will willingly humble themselves and allow themselves to kneel before anybody or anything. We see Solomon here not kneeling just before God. You and I, we go into our prayer closet at home, and if we're physically capable, we kneel and we ask God to do whatever it is we're asking Him to do. But many of us, even in a room this size this morning, we often struggle with the idea, and we talked about this recently about the altar of intercession and coming to the altar and praying for others. But you know... Many times when we humble ourselves, we don't want to do it publicly. But here's the king of Israel saying, I will. At this point, we still don't know if Solomon, I almost called him David again. <laughs> we don't know if Solomon kneels at the beginning of the prayer or somewhere along the way. 
Either way works. Let's go on as we look into these verses dealing with Solomon's prayer. In verse number 23, we see Solomon's statement that there is no God like thee. 2 Chronicles 6.14 is the exact same verse almost. There is no God like the God that you and I serve. If there is any one person that's worthy of humbling ourselves before, he is it. Would I kneel before my wife? Probably not. Would I kneel before my pastor? I love my pastor, but probably not. But I should be willing to kneel before my God. Let me, let me just for a moment give us a, a thought. Did Solomon kneel at the beginning or somewhere along the way? If he knelt at the beginning, it would have been out of sheer recognition only of who God is. But my thought would be that somewhere along the way, Solomon's attitude changed. You see, in the next several verses, 13 or 14 verses that we read, there are 11 requests that Solomon makes for God to do something. When you begin to, when you begin to ask God for things in your life, I'm not talking about God putting bread on the table. I'm not talking about God putting a roof over your head. I'm talking about asking God to do something that nobody else can do. Suddenly, it brings you to a place where you recognize just what you're asking. Lord, who am I to ask for any of this? If that doesn't humble you, you've got issues. If I cannot recognize the magnitude of what I'm asking God to do, my heart's not right with God. If I can't recognize, first of all, that God is, is worthy to be knelt before, but then the sheer magnitude of, of everything that's about to be asked for. And it may not have happened in the first few verses. It may have happened somewhere halfway through. He suddenly realizes, what am I doing standing? What am I doing standing before my God? How can I ask for this and still feel prideful enough to stand? Look at the rest of these verses. Verse 24, he says that God is a keeper of promises. Verse 25, he makes his first request, a request for God to keep keeping the promises that he's made. God has made so many promises at this point in Scripture that unless we sat down and literally wrote them down, we, we could never remember all of them. That he would take his children, the children of Israel, and make them as the sand of the sea as the stars of heaven? Oh man, what a great promise. But it wasn't just those promises. The promises continued year after year after year that God would do something further. That He would take David and that He would extend His lineage forever. I don't know about any of us. I, I am in a unique situation right now. Uh, a recognition within the last couple of years that my son is my only child and my son will quite likely never have a child. He and his wife are, have not been, at this point, 10 years of marriage, blessed by God to have a child. My family tree, my branch of the family tree, stops with my son. But for God to make a promise that your family tree will extend not just two or three generations, but forever, man, what a promise. 
And the recognition of that, the request that God would keep keeping the promises that he had made to David in particular. In verse number 26, we see the request for God to verify his word. Who are we? And this, this might be maybe the place where Solomon suddenly realizes, who are we to ask God to verify anything? There's a, a bumper sticker that's been around for many, many years. It says, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. The problem is that bumper sticker is faulty. God said it, that settles it. doesn't matter if you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it. Who are we to ask God to verify anything? We go back to last week's lesson, and we see this event in the life of Gideon. And, of course, Gideon is famous for one thing in his entire life, the fleece. The greatest test in all of Scripture. A test that God passes with flying colors. Man, I tell you what, who are we to ask God to verify anything? Talk about the ultimate in pride. But Lord, if you don't prove it's true, I'm not going to believe it. Think of Thomas from the New Testament. Except I touch the wounds in his hands and feet and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. Man, talk about pride. Who am I to even ask for the ability or the opportunity to do that? We go on into the next verses, verse number 27. We see Solomon begins to question God's intent to dwell among his people. Each of these have a significant alternative in Second Chronicles, and in many cases they read exactly the same. You can find them. If you need the references, I'd be happy to give them. Verses 29 through 30, we see the request of God to watch over his house. Not just to watch over the children of Israel, but to, to watch over this place that's been built for His name. Why would we have to ask God to do that, to be quite honest with you? God would want to, but yet Solomon felt it necessary to ask God to do just that. Verses 31 and 32, we see the request for just judgment. God doesn't have an alternate that's the only judgment God can give is a just judgment. Our God is a God of justice. Thank God He's a God of mercy. But without that justice, you and I this morning, I don't know about you guys, but as a parent, especially the older I get, the more I realize I wasn't exactly just as a parent in the judgments that I made toward my son. The corrections that we put into the life of our children, the, the, the punishments, the corporal punishments, one, one day it might get the child sent to the corner. The next day you want to spank them. And that's not justice. That's not just at all. But we serve a God that's just by nature. And Solomon, maybe at this point, he recognizes just what he said. Lord, what other nature do you have? Who am I to think that I, I need to even ask you for this? And maybe this is when he knelt down. There are so many points in this that he could have, and maybe he did it, all of them suddenly realize. Verse number 33 and 34, he requests mercy and forgiveness. Now this one, in my opinion, is one that we should always be asking for. I'm always asking God for mercy because I don't deserve it. And the realization that we don't deserve mercy should cause us to kneel and humble ourselves before God. Verses 35 and 36, a request for the restoration of blessings upon repentance. Solomon knew and recognized that the children of Israel would sin. 
He knew that it, would, it was a guarantee in their life. It's going to happen. You and I this morning, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that before sundown tonight, we're going to disappoint or, dis, or disobey God in some way. It's bound to happen. And in Solomon's wisdom, he, at this point, Solomon's not been granted the wisdom that we know that he's so famous for in Scripture. At this point, even in his earthly wisdom, he realizes that when, when, when we do something that's deserving of punishment, we need God's forgiveness when we repent. Could you imagine a, a life where maybe you repented, you turned from your wicked way, and God still wouldn't forgive you? I can't imagine what that might be like, but that would be a terrible thing. We go on in these verses, we see verse number 37 through 40, we see a request for just punishment. This is not just judgment, this is just punishment. Making the punishment match the sin. We read that in the New Testament, we read this idea of an eye for an eye. We get this all through Scripture, technically, of this idea of an eye for an eye, a just payment for whatever's been done. But asking God to do the same. We know that in the latter parts of the Old Testament, we know that they ask for mercy. Mercy in the midst of judgment. That's what we want. That's what we need. And that's what Solomon is asking for. Verses 41 through 43, we see, we see an interesting request. In verses 41 through 43, we see a request for blessings upon converts. Now this isn't so unusual for us, or at least it shouldn't be. pastor mentioned that there were nine children that gave their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ this week. I don't know about you, but that makes the whole week worth it. I know there are a lot of people that put a lot of work into this. I did not come on the last day just to get credit for anything. I couldn't be here for the whole week, but those that were here, they put their hearts and lives into that week. But what if we, what if we didn't pray for the converts? What if we never prayed for those nine children? I don't know their names, but I'm sure each and every teacher does. The teacher that led them to the Lord, that's a name they've got remembered. And hopefully they'll remember to pray for them. Because if we don't, what happens? They go right back out and they do the exact same stuff. They live the same life they've been living. Unless we begin to disciple them and train them, they're going right back into the same hog sty they were in before. We go on into verse number 44 and 45. We see a request for protection in battle. Verses 46 through 52, we see a request for forgiveness even from captivity. I can't imagine what it might be like to have lived as, a, as an Israelite in those days. Days when you knew that the enemy had taken control of your country and there was nothing you could do. But those are the days that you really want to call on God and those are the days that you just beg God to hear you. You know, we may not be in captivity this morning, but there are some similarities of the life that we live. If you are not oppressed by the world that we live in, if you're not disgusted by the choices, if you're not just 
your stomach turned by all of what's going on in our world, you've got a heart that's messed up. We've got to come to the place where we realize what's going on around us. The debauchery of our country, the debauchery of the world itself. To come to God and say, Lord, would you please give us forgiveness even in the captivity of the world that we live in. We need that. That should be enough to humble us. And we get to verses 53 and 54. Verse 53 is a reminder of God's choice to choose Israel. God knew what He was doing when He chose you to be His child. He knew the disappointments that you would create. He knew the sins that would be in your life, even as a child of God. And yet He chose you anyway. Man, what a blessing. The 20 plus years that I've been serving God, to, go, to think back and to think of all the times that I've disappointed Him, and yet He still chose me. To think that however much longer I've gotten, however many more disappointments there will be, to think that He still chose me. That should be enough to humble us. In verse 54, we see Solomon as he arises. But once again, we see something interesting in 2 Chronicles. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1-3, through 3, the Bible says, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, here's where we're about to see a major change. Up until this point, in 1 Kings, none of this is mentioned. But here in 2 Chronicles 7, the fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice on the altar and the end of verse 7 says, And the glory of the Lord, when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves and with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Now, I'd like to be very clear this morning that the fire did not fall from heaven because of Solomon's humbling himself. But have you ever wondered what would have happened had he not? Would the fire have still fallen? The blessings of God are all based on God and His mercy. But sometimes we, we hinder what God wants to do. How many, how many times have you read through the New Testament and that one passage of Scripture where it says that He did not there many mighty works because of their unbelief? God does base what He does upon our reactions many times. I believe in this particular instance, if Solomon had not humbled himself, God may have still consumed the sacrifice on the altar, but would the glory of the Lord fill the house the way that it did that day? Maybe not. I believe it does make a difference. And when we learn to humble ourselves before God, we learn that the blessings of God can be magnified beyond anything we could ever imagine. As I thought about this, I, I thought of how important 
humble lesson. Humility is in Scripture. It's a key component to God's forgiveness. We read in Acts chapter 9 and verse number 3, 3 through 5, we see the account of Saul of Tarsus as he's there on the road to Damascus. And the Bible says in verse number 4, And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You see, when a, a lost person, an unsaved person, comes to realize and recognize who he's dealing with, that should bring them to the place of humility. We cannot stand before God in any case. I am so aggravated at people that think that they're going to show up at the great white throne of judgment and stand before God. There's no standing before God. Guys, as we look at this and we think about it, we, we read passages like Romans chapter 10, and the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling upon the name of the Lord is not something you can do in pride. You never call on somebody to help you until you recognize that you're beyond help and that you can't do it yourself. That is the ultimate recognition that pride has come to an end. I can't do this. I've got to call on somebody that's bigger. How many, how many times have we attempted something only to have to say, uh, let's call a lifeline here, you know? <laughs> I need to call somebody to help me. Man, there are so many times that we've come to that place and realized that, man, we're, we're in over our head. I love the passage in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Which one does the Bible say went back to his home justified? It sure wasn't the one that stood before the Lord and said, Hey, God, look at me. Man, I got it all together, God. I know what I'm doing. I fast. I pay my tithes. I do this. I do that. And yet this poor publican stands afar off and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. <laughs> I'm not even worthy to look up, he says, in essence. Man, what a passage. But it's not about the physical position this morning. Some of us in this room, we have issues with our knees, and I understand, trust me. I broke both kneecaps over the years, and it is not a pleasant experience to get down and get back up. Getting down is okay. Getting back up might be an issue. By the way, if I ever fall in one of the services here, there are two phone calls that I ask you to make, 911, because I promise I probably hurt, and a tow truck to help get me back up. I'm not exactly a small man. Getting up and getting back down and getting down and getting back up is some of it's an issue, but it's not about your position. We look at the thieves on the cross and we see the thief that cries out and asks God to save him. He recognizes, he says, are we not condemned justly? Don't we deserve this? That's humility. It's a recognition of his current state. But he knew that he needed help and he needed to ask God for forgiveness. But even for you and I this morning, we still need forgiveness in our lives. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. I told you we'd get there eventually. It says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and 
turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Even as a child of God, we still need humility. We've got to humble ourselves before God. Humility is a key component in God's lifting of our lives. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the, in the sight of God, and He shall lift you up. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. We're nobody. I'm sure there's preachers all around our country today that think there's some great something because their name is on a sign out front. They're nobody. And when they realize that and humble themselves before God, then God might make them something. It's not about us. It's about God. Humility is a key component of God's preservation. Proverbs 16 and 18, the Bible says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You think about the world that we live in today. What do they call it? Pride month last month. Pride goeth before destruction. There's a destruction coming. They need to understand it and recognize it. It is a key component of God's preservation, but it's also a key component of every Christian life. James chapter 4 and verse number 6 says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. God resisteth the proud. When we think we're something, God's got His hand on our forehead holding us back. He resisteth the proud. I remember a preacher some years ago had a little boy from the congregation come up and wanted to prove just how big God was in comparison to us. He uses this boy, he was maybe four or five years old, and he says, I want you to try to hit me. He reaches out and he puts his hand on this kid's forehead. That child couldn't come within a mile of him. You know, he's holding him back, swinging for all he's worth. Never did connect. If he ever connected, that dude was going to be in trouble. He was going to be hurting any individual. But, you know, that's where we're at. God resisteth the proud. It's when we come to the place where we humble ourselves before God that God really shows the success in our life that we request so often. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And I'm not going to read all of them. Verse 12 says this, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Humbleness of mind. It's not just humility in action. It's not just humility in our presentation to others. But it's a humility in our mind. A recognizing of who we are before God. We're not worthy of anything that God does for us. But yet He does it anyway. The altar of humility should have a daily component in our lives. Because if, if Solomon, as the king of Israel, could humble himself before God, should not we? Who are we? We are not the leader of God's people. God's chosen nation. One nation out of all the world that God chose. And He was their leader. Look at me. I'm the king of Israel. No, 
He humbled himself. Let's do just that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We do thank you for the word of God. We ask you to help us to learn how to humble ourselves. Lord, many times we are so proud. Proud of what we are and what we may have accomplished. Only to realize at some point, Lord, that you are in charge and in control of it all. Father, I ask for your blessing upon this morning's service. Help our pastor as he stands before your people. Give us the message this morning that we need, O oh, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor, it's all yours. As we stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, the piano's playing. Maybe God's spoken to your heart about the altar of humility. Humility is, just as was stated, that component, that first thing really that's required in getting in touch with God. First thing that's mentioned there in Second Chronicles 7.14 is will humble themselves. Sometimes that's hard to do. Come to the end of ourselves, realize we're not what we thought we were. But it's such a necessary thing in our life if we want God to have first place. The altar of humility. As the piano plays, one more verse. 